go. You okay. are live. Thanks. So, in that, the words used are specifically used for a reason. The explanations specifically defined to get at biblical truth. Um, the statement of faith we had before wasn't as extensive and didn't have as many of the reference scriptures as we find today. So we anticipate this really to never have to get redone. We believe it accurately represents what we believe about God's word defined in these various topics. All right, so let's <clears throat> let's begin. <clears throat> From all eternity, God sovereignly ordained all that exists and all that occurs in his creation in order to display the fullness of his glory. God's plans are efficacious. That means effective. That means what he intends works out. God's plans are efficacious, always coming to pass, and they are universal, encompassing, encompassing all the affairs of nature, history, and individual lives. These decrees are an exercise of his free, unchangeable, wise, and holy will. Okay, let's just stop there. That's kind of a big mouthful even that far, isn't it? But you can see it, it's kind of taken this gem of God's purpose and it's turning it. It's kind of looking at this facet and looking at that facet, looking at that facet. And you can see in the bottom the referenced scriptures because these are not just truths about God. They are that, but they're truths that are birthed out of scriptural truth. Okay, so let's start over again. From all eternity, okay, God didn't have a beginning or an end, right? From all eternity, God sovereignly, that means he has complete authority, dominion, power. God sovereignly ordained, he declared it, he decreed it. It was his purpose. All that exists, so everything that exists, God sovereignly ordained. And all that occurs in his creation. Why? In order to display the fullness of his glory. His creation is to glorify God. God's plans are efficacious. They always come to pass. And they're universal. They encompass all the affairs of nature, of history, and your life and my life, individual lives. These decrees are an exercise of his free. There's nothing that constrains God. Unchangeable. All that he does remains. Wise. There is nothing that would not be described as wise in what God does and his holy will. Okay. Any thoughts as... I'm just going through this. <clears throat> Don't have to have any. But isn't it kind of fun to just read this and think about God? Doesn't your view of God just kind of rise up a bit? 
All right, let's continue. Yet God in his foreordination, okay, that's a big word. And that would be one that I've listed on your sheet. You can see under the three sections, there are just some definitions. And <clears throat> the theological definitions come from a systematic theology book written by Wayne Grudem. And that would be one that if you're just wanting to have a one-volume book of systematic theology that does kind of what the Statement of Faith does, only this volume. So it'll take any of the topics found in the Bible, like angels, demons, and it has a section on that. What does the Bible have to say about it? And in the back, there's a glossary. So I'm going to write that up here because that, that's, a, that's a great resource if you just wanted to have it. It's called... Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. He's got actually two different versions. The, the first one is, or you might as well get the second one because that's where he's just kind of refined some things. But that's, <clears throat> that's what I've used as reference here in the theological definitions. So if you look at what it means for ordination, it's the act of God ordaining his will to be done before time began. He ordains all things. His foreordination. Before it came about, he ordained it. Of all things. Yet God in his foreordination is not the author of sin, nor do his decrees negate the will of his creatures. See, he's not the author of sin. And his decrees don't negate the will of his creatures. You and I all, we have a will. <coughs> We're not sovereign like God, but we have a, a will. That's birthed out of the desires of our hearts, right? Is God sovereign? Yes. Does he know what I'm going to do? Yes. But do I have a choice what I do? Yeah. Am I going to throw the racer or not? He knows because he's sovereign. Do you know I wasn't going to catch it because I'm <clears throat> losing a little bit? But uh, his decrees do not negate the will of his creatures who act in the power of willing choice in accord with their nature. His ordaining... His ordaining and governing all things is compatible with his creature's moral accountability such that God never condemns a person unjustly. Therefore, all persons are responsible for their actions, which have real and eternal consequences. Okay, it's almost like you have to take every sentence and you just kind of have to think as you're going through it. Because it's not too complex, is it? If I just read it fast, like, just read it fast, it can feel just overwhelming. But you slow down. And you read sentence by sentence. And you take in what it's saying. And then what's really helpful is to go to the, the references that are listed there. Just have your Bible in the other hand. Where did that thought come from? 
because they're not just made up. You can see the number of footnotes that just in that first section, 71 through 82, so 11 footnotes in that one little paragraph. So every thought is defined first by the truth of Scripture that comes up with how that's then articulated. Okay, so it comes from his word. It's kind of a systematic approach, taking what God's word says throughout the Bible about that. Okay? All right, so we've read like the first... What? The first section there. So let's do this. Keith, I want you to do what I just did. I want you to read it, okay? And as you read it, read it with a sense of feeling in it. Not just like you're reading a dictionary. But what this is saying, it's talking about your God. Okay? So as you're talking about your God, just read this. And when I say with feeling, I'm not trying to get you to read a poem or something. But... (laughs) But let's move from the fact that we're just talking about facts about God to the place that we, we're, we're describing the God we love and know. And this is ways that he's articulating, we're able to articulate who he is and what he's done where they're included in his sovereign purposes. Okay? So, so from all eternity... God sovereignly ordained all that exists and all that occurs in his creation in order to display the fullness of his glory. Yes. God's plans are efficacious, always coming to pass. And they are universal, encompassing all the affairs of nature, history, our individual lives. These decrees are an exercise of his free, unchangeable, wise, holy Yes. Yet God, in his foreordination, is not the author of sin, nor do his decrees negate the will of his creatures who act with the power of will and choice in accordance with their nature. His ordaining and governing all things is compatible with his creatures' moral accountability, such that God never condemns a person unjustly. Therefore, all persons are responsible for their actions, which have real and eternal consequences. Good. See the difference? I think so often we take a statement of faith and it's like, oh, okay, I know everybody believes something. And, you know, it just seems like it's too complicated and and too theological to understand. It's not. The goal is it's articulating what we believe. It's just doing it in a way that's complete, more complete. Did you hear anything in there that you thought, I don't know if I believe that? Yes. Not any on that. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say, to me, it's it's really super important. Robert and I went to college in a town that had more seminaries at that time than any other town in the country, um, but none of them were Bible mm. um, teaching. 
So we became very discriminatory about what church are we going to go to based on what the statement of faith is. Because, oh, good. You know, when you're young and you're looking at churches and, you know, the tagline is we take the Bible seriously but not literally, you know, you have to look a lot closer. And we're newly married and, you know, talking about what do we believe and starting on our marriage life. So this class is important for us for our kids because we're like, when you go out into the world and try to figure out what church you're going to go to, you need to know what their statement of faith is. Yes. When we first moved to Arizona, we happened to live on the same street as a person that was starting a church. And he's like, I want you to be in charge of my church plant. And Robert said, well, I'd love to read your statement of faith. He looked at him like he had no idea what Robert was talking about. And then he said, well, you know, we don't believe anything weird or anything. And Robert's like, if you spend a year praying about a church and you're going to plant a church, shouldn't you have put some thought into what the statement of faith is? So Robert kept asking him, you know, graciously about it. And then the response was, uh, so I met with him over three or four times over several months and kind of was gently nagging. And finally, um, he said, the last meeting I ever had with him was, oh, here, I got, I got my statement of faith. I just finished printing it last night. I read it. There were spelling and grammar errors galore. And it was just poorly written. It was not clear. And it was so disheartening. Because I thought, here is this person who was so excited about having a church as if he were starting a business without a business plan. And um, so I, we kind of parted company. I didn't really say anything to him uh, about it other than, um, well, thank you. I'll take a look at this. And I, I skimmed it briefly. And you know, I saw the, the quality of it or lack thereof. It was, like I said, very disheartening given what Stephanie shared so uh, poignantly about what we grew up, our, as our marriage grew in our um, together in our you know, church-going time. Um, so, in case you're wondering where we went, we didn't even see Berkeley. So, just confessing that out loud. <coughs> uh, but anyway, so just wanted to say that that is just so important, and even with our kids, to know exactly what it is that we all believe, what our church believes, and when you go out to pick a church. Do you know how that lines up with scripture? So I appreciate exactly. all of that. So. Well, I like this because it, it <clears throat> sort of skewers some of the um, false teaching that we've been subjected to. Uh, for example, the, in the, on page 16, God's election is entirely gracious and not at all conditioned upon foreseen faith. Right there. That's the God looked down the corridors of time and saw mm-hmm. whom would be faithful. No, because we are dead. You cannot be faithful if you are dead, right, in our sin. So anyway, I like how it's, but it's saying in a positive manner as opposed to. And it should be. Right. As a, yeah. Exactly. So not mm-hmm. as a refutation of other erroneous teaching. So thank you. Yeah. And this, again, was done by Sovereign Grace Churches, and we we participated in that as different sections were gone they would send it to all the elders within the movement to review and to look at give input back so we're if i can say this in the sanctified way we're proud of this because i think it defines what we want what defines what we believe yeah. well and i appreciate it because also you know things written by committee usually are terrible 
<laughs> and they are. And um, you know, somebody changes all the that's to witches. A third guy goes back and changes all the wishes to that's, and, and then just ends up having no meat to it and no spirit. Um, so this is very different. So it's refreshing. That's good. Excellent. Good input. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Okay. Well, that's what I wanted to say. Refreshing, and and what's going on in our world right now to sit down and hear that in a nutshell is just refreshing. Mm -hmm. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Not only we pray that it's refreshing, but to build your faith that what we believe on, what we believe is found within Scripture. And you can see, as I mentioned earlier, the number of scriptures that that are listed. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah it, because we want you to see where it's found in the Bible. Like in, uh, <clears throat> as we go back to the very first line, from all eternity, God sovereignly ordained all that exists and all that occurs in his creation. Footnote 71, you can see there's Psalm 33, well, that's tiny. The last one, Ephesians, <laughs> is that 111? Yeah, it is. Okay, I may have to get them from you. Which says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, in verse 72, one of the references, 1136, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So, again, it's just not words that are just, yeah, that sounds good. Or adhering to culture, but adhering to his word. All right, let's go to our next section. Yes, Ginger. Okay. I believe it that. All persons are responsible for the actions which have real and eternal consequences. But what do we do with people with mental illness? That's a great question. Does anyone else have any other questions? <laughs> no, I believe that I'll give you what I think. Okay. Um, I think that there's many, many mentally ill people that have the ability to understand right and wrong and have conviction for sin and respond to that by putting faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'm meeting with a, a man currently that would be in his 20s, late 20s, and he's mentally ill, seriously mentally ill. Uh, so his emotional maturity is much less but he's a believer. And he responds to God's word. Now I think with everyone, it's, it's a different situation. Mental illness is a genuine illness. There is an, an effect in the body. Um, so I don't believe that that keeps someone from being able to understand have the holy spirit move on their hearts etc but god knows that um so i guess i'd have a qualified 
uh, it depends. And it depends on just the mental capacity of that individual. But I would not at all write off that section of humanity. Humanity is, is like, there, there's, they don't have a responsibility because I think that there is an understanding of right and wrong and decisions to go along with one of those and what motivates the heart in that. I think that there just needs to be faith, not just. I think as those around them would have faith that, yeah, the gospel can be effective even in their lives. And someone that's bipolar, for example, that you would have manic times or depressive times that makes it much, much harder, but not impossible. So I think it's, you know, kind of tied individually to the situation of the person. But it is part of the sovereignty of God in the sense that um, all of that is brought upon by the sin having entered into the world. Yes, now, it's a consequence of all illness right. is a consequence of sin. And so it has an impact on the individual and the corporate in terms of being able to view who God is. Yes. Would it be correct, Trey, um, on page 15 going to 16, where it says, His ordaining and governing all things is compatible with his creature's moral accountability, such that God never condemns a person unjustly. Um, where it says accountability, would it be acceptable to put in the word and capacity? I think so, because it says such that God never condemns a person unjustly. Yeah. See, that's where we trust God. Yeah, exactly. we, we just, there's things we don't understand. There's things that um, may seem to us just or unjust, but we can trust the only just judge to rule on those things in a way that is wise and correct. There are a lot of answers we're not going to get till we get to heaven. But the things that we need to understand and know and agree on are clear enough in scripture to where we can embrace them. Great question. All right, should we go into God's grace and election, that next section? God in his great love, don't you see, I love how that begins. God in his great love. In fact, in Ephesians 1, 3, I think it says, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. In love. So we don't forget that motivation there. God in his great love before the foundation of the world chose those whom he would save in Christ Jesus. God's election. And again, election, God's election is one of the defined terms there in your paper. An act of God before creation in which he chooses some to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And again, that's from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. God's election is entirely gracious and not at all conditioned upon foreseen faith, obedience, perseverance, or any merit in those whom God has chosen. His decision to set his saving love on the elect is based entirely on his sovereign will and good pleasure. 
The number of God's elect is fixed for eternity, and no one who has been chosen by God will be lost. In the mystery of his will, God passes over the non-elect, withholding his mercy and punishing them for their sins as a display of his holy justice and wrath. As God has appointed the elect to glory, so has he foreordained all the means necessary to carry out his saving purposes. Those whom he predestined are redeemed by Christ, effectually called to faith by his spirit, justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by God's power to the end. God does all of this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of his glorious grace. Although attended with mystery, the doctrine of election should not produce speculation, introspection, apathy, or pride, but rather humility, gratitude, assurance, evangelistic passion, and eternal praise for the undeserved grace of God in Christ. Now, there are a number of words there. If, if you, What I've tried to do with the definitions here, and this is at Jeff's encouragement, is that we can read some of these words, and we've heard them 50 times or more, but yet if you say, what does that mean? And define it to someone in elementary school. You know, define it on that. Can we do that? So I've just tried to list various definitions that might help us make sure that we're understanding what it means to be effectually called, listed in your definitions. An act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. Or justified. It's an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. So don't hesitate to even pull up a definition, a, a, a Bible dictionary, and look up some of these terms. Look, look at them in the scripture so that you're able to ensure you're understanding what you're reading. So let's, let's talk about that section, God's grace and election. Did it come through? What did it leave you with? Let me ask you this question. What did it leave you with as you read, as I read this? Higher view of God. Good. This whole section is a higher view of God. You know, when people say, look what God has done for man, or make it about man's sense of theology, it doesn't have a very high view of God. This, by talking about the sovereignty of God, raises your elevation and view of who God is. Yes, and that's what it should do. That's the goal, right? Yes. Other thoughts? How about that last paragraph? Although attended with mystery, the doctrine of election should not produce speculation, introspection, apathy, or pride, but rather humility, gratitude, assurance, evangelistic passion, 
and eternal praise for the undeserved grace of God in Christ. The only question I have there is introspection. Maybe it's because I'm not understanding the context, but in Scripture it tells us to examine our hearts and examine for ourselves, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Is that not what we, aren't we called to do? We're called to do that. Yeah. What we're not called to do is like, well, is there something within me that, okay. you know, merited or God saw that was above average or you know it's okay. it's not like i'm looking to me as why i'm saved i'm looking to christ yeah, for sure. by his mercy by his grace alone good question though well i think the, the main difference <clears throat> here is god does all this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of his glorious grace it's all yes. about his glory mercy and grace and um and it's the you know why People say, why doesn't God save all? Well, my question to those people is, why did he save any? Exactly. You know, and, and that's not just my question, but you know what I mean. So, um, <clears throat> and we, we don't know who God is. We don't know the elect. We'll never know the elect. So we are to communicate the gospel because the gospel is the power unto salvation. And we must be faithful. God uses human means to communicate the gospel. Ange? I can't find it, but isn't there a verse back in First Timothy or Second Timothy or somewhere that says the Lord is not willing for any to perish, but that all should come. Second Peter. Second Peter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's his heart. So that's where you take all of Scripture, and you can see how that can be the foundation to where we understand in Ephesians chapter uh, one, verse three: "In love, in love, he predestined us, the elect, to adoption." And loving predestined adoption. Better read it. Good reading's better than a bad paraphrase. Let's see. Even verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined, verse five, us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, yeah, God's heart is that all, all would come to know him. In the context of that, Angie, in Second Peter 3, 9, is talking about the day of the Lord and why God has delayed returning. Because, you know, it could have all been wrapped up when Jesus died on the cross, really, right? Uh, but God is allowing his, his chosen ones and we don't know what that is to be fulfilled until Jesus returns again. So the context is he's still not dead. And on Correct. the note, I love how it says the evangelistic passion. Because sometimes people say that if we believe in Reformed theology, that God is going to save those whom he's going to save, that we don't have a passion for sharing the gospel with others. So I just want to say I like that that's included in the statement of faith, and we do have an evangelistic passion because 
we don't know who those that need to hear it. Like we said in the gospel, is the power exactly. of God's word to save people. <clears throat> and he's working on them. But I actually like it because from my standpoint, I just share what the Lord has given me to share. It's not my responsibility to turn their heart. Mm-hmm. That's his work. So to me, this gives this whole section gives me a lot of comfort that it's not really about me in terms of why he saved me or who he's working in the other lives or even as a mom with my kids. My job is just to present the gospel to them, to disciple them, but that's the Lord's work that he has to change their hearts. I think that gives a lot more, you know, <laughs> resting on his sovereignty instead of my efforts. Because that's yeah. the word. Yes. Yeah. I mean, God uses our efforts, but someone's salvation is never dependent on another human. It's the work of God moving on the heart of someone to draw it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh or to draw it from one that's greatest desires is for themselves to seeing their need for a savior. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So Everyone has the opportunity. God gives everyone the opportunity. Um, you know, as it says, even in creation, we see God's glory. So nobody is has an excuse. We we all have the opportunity, but how we re- he already knows how we're going to respond. So again, in His sovereignty, He knows how we'll respond to Him. But we can share the gospel with everyone, and everyone can hear whether they choose or don't choose. Yeah, there's there's two concepts. One is, um, thank you for sharing that. There's one general revelation, mm-hmm. which means every human, Romans 1 talks about this, where you go out and you see the sun. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you see the intricacy of a, a leaf on a tree and, and uh, photosynthesis uh, and understand that concept. Or, or you look into the, how the hand works or the brain or the DNA, the eyeball. The, so that's general knowledge of God that every, every man sees, every person sees, right? Then there's special revelation, which is the message of the gospel talking about Jesus. And every man is without excuse because there is a God out there and it, the question is, do you seek him? <laughs> Who is this? Who is his God? <laughs> you know, so general revelation, special revelation, special revelation is the message of Christ and the message of the gospel. And you're right. We're to all share that. Mm-hmm. We don't know whom God has called. We're just grateful he's called us. Our goal, our what we're called to do, and it says there, in that last sentence, with evangelistic passion and eternal praise for the undeserved grace of God in Christ. Okay, any other thoughts? All right, let's go to our next section, creation, providence, and man. Starting on verse 19. All right, who would like to read this? Angie. God creates and rules all things. In the beginning, the triune God freely created 
out of nothing, the universe and everything in it by the word of his power, all for his own pleasure and the display of his glory. God declared the unit God declared the entirety of his creation to be very good. And even in its fallen state it tells of his greatness and is to be delighted in and stewarded for his glory. As supreme creator, God is separate from and transcendent over all he has made. As sovereign Lord, he is present with his creation to sustain all things, govern all creatures, and direct all circumstances in accord with his holy and loving will. In everything, God supremely acts for his glory and for the good of his people in Christ, granting us great comfort and unshakable hope in God's love, wisdom, and faithfulness to us in this life and in eternity. Then they just encourage you to read that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, here, here's Angie reading it, and you can just enjoy it while she is. So, again, this is a statement of faith, This, but it's not some dry document. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that articulates what we believe in a way that should get us excited. Yes. In fact, because it's from the Bible, and the Bible itself, only the Bible, obviously this is derived from the Bible, but the Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, divides even the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the Word of God, and it should excite us. All right, let's let's read that. Any, any questions, comments on that section before we continue to read? One thing I sort of wondered about is the process by which God's word translates into matter and energy. He speaks and these things come about. And that just blows my mind. So. um, Let there be light. And there was light. No, and so, but not just let there be light, but let there be stuff. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Let there be animals, yeah. firmaments in the heaven, birds of the air, sea, land separated. Yeah. And so you think about like magnetism, electricity, these are embedded into his creation from his power. We look at like the power of that's good. energy yeah. or a power plant and like, well, that's just a tiny speck compared to what his spoken word was, mm. you know, anyway, so... Um, I, I was having a conversation with Rich once about, um, you know, like questions you want to ask, or in preparation for the series on questions you want to ask God, and that was my question is, what is that like? And I know we can't understand it, so I thought, well, when I get to heaven, I think my first two utterances are going to be, whoa, and then, oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> whoa, in response to the glory of God, and then, oh, now I understand <laughs> 
anyway. That's good. Very well said. Now, one thing I'd like to point out, if you look, I'm going to read a, a sentence from page 19, kind of three quarters of the way down. It says, as supreme creator, God is separate from and transcendent over all he has made. Now, that again, that was, I've heard that word, but to be able to define it, I defined it for you. It says, transcendent is the term used to describe God as being greater than the creation and independent of it. So that's what's being referred to here in transcendent. Again, describing God. So, so one question, that, and I apologize, I might be going like backwards. Oh, I will. I'm not, I am going backwards a little bit, but and this might be a bigger, you know, you know, question conversation. But there's there's more, you know, repetitive mentions of God creating everything. God creating all things, God governing all things through him, all things are created, all, 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 mm-hmm. but not sin. Correct. So, like, how can we so freely use the all word when all means all, but not include sin in that category? Oh, that's a great question, Keith. I, I don't really have the answer for that. <laughs> you know, but it's like a great question. Yeah, ask Jeff that question. <laughs> but... The reality is God is holy. So we have to take what we know. I'm always a proponent of let, let's let's take what we know and work towards what we don't know. Let's not start with what we don't know and try to work back. It's a little harder that way. So what do we know about God? That he is omnipotent, uh, omnipresent, omniscient, etc., and holy. So he's without sin. Sure. So how God uses sin and the decisions of man. I'm just not probably smart enough to answer your question specifically um, how sin came about. But that's been a theological kind of discussion for centuries. But the reality is sin is not of God. God didn't create sin, but in some way allowed it to be in the serpent part of, you know. I don't have the answer, but our brain is kind of speaking and contrast helps us to understand things. Like how can you really understand high without understanding low? This is what I teach. So could we really understand a holy God if we didn't have the juxtaposition. So in a sense, allowing for evil and sin only magnifies God more because you have a sense that he is totally without it. Doesn't answer your question. But. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, why would God allow it? You know, people ask that all the time. Yeah. But without it, you wouldn't really understand what holy and perfect and good and righteous and how we are so not any of those things mm-hmm. without I, I definitely believe that the part of the, I, I guess, appreciation is, is such an underwhelming word for what we feel to what God has done for us. But part of that appreciation is understanding what sin is. Yeah. And, in, and in, in, a, in a storyteller, in a, in a creator, it, it makes sense that a storyteller or a creator would create something that is so opposite of holy, so we can see. 
Like that's part of, and to a certain extent, what we sort of teach our kids in terms of, of like this is so much better than that, and you are you you point it out to them that this is better than that, and so, I guess, and again, just in my brain, like I guess it makes sense that God can't, because in His holiness, if He is a holy, and if Jesus can take on the sin of the world, and He is fully God yep. and fully holy, then it it makes sense in terms of telling the story of all this creation for us to fully appreciate he has something that reveals like wow that is bad and this is good and, and you are the good and the opposite is bad yeah paul paul brings that argument right in his letters to where it's it's like you're dead and your trespasses and sins before and the reality of that i know <clears throat> Way back when I proposed to Charlotte and we went and got a ring. And so we're sitting there in the glass counter, you know, and all the you know, underneath. Well, they didn't just put it out there for me to see. They got this black velvet cloth and then they put the ring on that. To fully see the, the beauty of. Right. You needed to see the, the dark, the black, to see the sparkle of the diamond. And yes, and so, see it for what it truly is. And the reality that we are that black velvet. <laughs> the reality is we're dead in our sins and trespasses. So it's a great question. And I love the fact that because we're reading this and going through it, it brings up those questions, which can spur additional study and review. Because the more you study God's word, the greater he is going to be. It's not like you're going to, oh, I just discovered something that shakes my faith. No. No, truth is truth, and it will always rise, and it will always come to the surface of our study. It's ground in God's word. All right, let's, let's look at this next section. God created man, male and female, in his own image, as the crown of creation and the object of his special care. God directed, excuse me, God directly created Adam from the dust of the earth and Eve from Adam's side as the parents of the entire human race. They were created to know and glorify their maker by trusting in his goodness and obeying his word. God gave them dominion over all creation to fill, subdue, and steward the earth as his representatives. All human beings are likewise made in the image of God. Despite the effects of the fall on sinful humanity, all people remain God's image bearers, capable of fellowship with him and possessing intrinsic dignity and value at every stage of life, from conception to death. Redemption in Christ progressively restores fallen men and women to their true humanity as they are conformed to the image of Christ. And you can see these next two sections. I'm going to continue reading because it, it directly addresses the cultural aspect of gender from a biblical standpoint in we're proclaiming it as part of our statement of faith. Men and women are both made in the image of God and are equal before him in dignity and worth. 
gender designed by God through our biological sex is therefore neither incidental to our identity nor fluid in its definition, but is essential to our identity as male and female. Although the fall distorts and damages God's design for gender and its expression, these remain part of the beauty of God's created order. Men and women reflect and represent God in distinct and complementary ways, and these differences are to be honored and celebrated in all dimensions of life. To deny or seek to remove these differences is to distort a fundamental way in which we glorify God as male and female. Biblical manhood and womanhood enrich human flourishing in all its dimensions. God instituted marriage as the union of one man and one woman who complement each other in a one flesh union that ultimately serves as a type of union between Christ and his church. This remains the only normative pattern of sexual relations for humanity. Humans, excuse me, husbands are to exercise headship sacrificially and with humility. And wives are to serve as helpers to their husbands, willingly supporting and submitting to their leadership. Together, these complementary roles bring joy and blessing to each other and display the beauty of God's purposes to the world. Single men and women are no less able to enjoy and honor and no less important to his purposes. They are also to give expression to God's image in distinct and complementary ways, flourishing as his image bearers and bringing him glory in their singleness. So now that's a lot, but when you th what do we believe? What does the Bible say about gender, about marriage, about men and women, about husbands and wives? So you can see the statement of faith addresses those topics and then has the references in the Bible to give you that foundation. So you can use this, even if you're talking to a friend or a neighbor or someone brings up a question, you can use this to see where, where do I go to the Bible to look at that? Where, where do I find this is God's word? We're creating this, the image of God. I think it's Genesis 1:27. Male and female, he created them. So <clears throat> I want to read all that together because the image of God men, made as man is male and female and marriage, sexuality, and singleness all tie together. Thoughts, questions that Keith can answer. <laughs> but you can see how this is a helpful tool. What is it that we do believe about gender? And you can see the uh, second sentence, gender designated by God and through our biological sex is therefore neither incidental to our identity nor fluid in its definition, but is essential to our identity as male and female. That's what we believe. Now, do some people struggle with same-sex attraction? Yes. But let's look at that as a temptation for sin, just as heterosexual lust outside of marriage 
you know, just lust, period. But you, you see, that, that sin, let's classify it right. It's not that God made a mistake in, mistake in creation. No, God created us however he created us. And that's not to minimize the struggle and the difficulty that someone would have in that condition. But let's help them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let's be confident in our own hearts with what the word of God has to say. When Rich taught on this, I liked how he talked about how we are all distorted because of sin. Yes. And this is just another one of those distortions that shouldn't be treated any differently. And that we all need the hope of the Savior. And I really liked that. And that's in the statement of faith here. I want to point out to deny or seek to remove these differences is to distort a fundamental way in which we glorify God as male and female. And isn't that what the world and sin tries to do, distort things? Yeah. And we have to be on guard against that. I remember naively thinking, what, how many years ago was it? Why do we have to have a measure? 96 or 98, somewhere Yeah, there. why do we have to have a measure on the ballot that marriage is one man, one woman? Like, why do we even have to put that on the ballot? We can just wait. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, or just wait, you know. But it's everything fundamental about what we believe is being attacked and distorted. And we're made to look like the ones that are narrow-minded and bigoted. Yeah. But um, that's what sin does, isn't it? It skews our view of God. Users view of ourselves, and therefore it means we don't feel that we have any needs. Yeah, the, the, the difference, where's my, okay, all right, your questions coming up. You ready? Okay, here we go. <clears throat> what is this word? <laughs> So before it has the thing at the end, it's resume. resume. But you change everything, you put an accent on it. It's totally different. Resume. Right? Well done. So the world puts the accent on me. I'm going to self-determine my life regardless of the create it's just a greater and greater emphasis on self right. we choose as believers to put the accent on god this is god's purpose this is his will it's to his glory and our world will ever be heading down the path of selfishness from now on right. and it shouldn't surprise us <sighs> that the world is acting that way because without the Holy Spirit without Christ, they, would do, they really can't make another choice. We can't make another choice. Right? So it yeah. shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us. It's just getting more and more kind of in your face. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that doesn't mean we necessarily just throw up our hands and say. Correct. But it just like it doesn't surprise me when my two-year-old sins. My two-year-old's unsaved. Like, obviously, they're going to be... Right. Not There's a sinful condition, yeah. etc. That's motivating the desires of the heart, <laughs> etc. Yeah. Right? Um, and, but that's another opportunity for me to teach, and it's another opportunity yes. for me to point back to Christ. And it's another opportunity for me to show them you can't do this alone. You you are not capable of obedience given unto yourself. Right. So just as we look at society. It should want us to dig deeper and share the gospel more, not 
push them back more. Like, you guys are don't understand, and you are ch choosing wrong, mostly because you don't have another, you don't know anything else, right? Just like my two-year-old. Yeah. Two anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but this also shows why it has to be in a statement of faith so clearly delineated because it yeah. is in, it is infiltrating the church now. Yes. yes. We have churches talking about how we want to be gracious and yeah. tolerant, accessible, accessible, and open. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because on my um, phone I was researching some church or something you know we're looking at colleges for daniel so it knew what my search history was mm -hmm. so all of a sudden in my social media i'm getting all these ads for churches hey come check out our church and yeah. they're all they have their words to let you know that they're open to you know whatever right. you know your walk of life is and you know yeah Open, accepting, acceptable. I'm like, why am I getting these? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's because it's the balance yeah. of, of acceptability. Because, right. yep. quite frankly, we have been accepted in spite of ourselves. Right. So, there should be a level of acceptance. It's just what is that word? But that definition is correct. Changed. Correct. It, right. 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 But not necessarily. It, and it's just that kind of that balance because. <laughs> The, the, that category of, of sin still required Jesus dying on the cross the same way that my selfishness, arrogance, and you know, pride did, and all the other things. Yeah. Um, right. Sin is sin. Right. right. And so, so, but I understand like that is there's a different kind of like, you can do whatever you want, just come to our church. Well, I'm more well, concerned about the false teachers that are there. Right, right, right. I mean, they've yeah. always been there. Yeah. They've always been there, but it's the ones that used to preach the gospel that are now saying, oh, I was really short-sighted and when I was thinking, and now I've had this new revelation from God that we should be accepting of all. I'm like, right. it just, it's but, interesting because we're not, we're not picketing in front of no. divorce lawyers. When divorce is clearly something that we would not go for. We're not picketing in front of them. We're not, you know, going in front of banks with greed and selfishness. Like, we're not, we're not doing that. I'm not picketing anything. Right? But you know what I'm saying? Like, in terms of the culture of even the church and where they go, like, the acceptance, there should be acceptance in the sense of, like, we were accepted in spite of ourselves. And so, in spite of yourself, we will accept you, too, and then teach the gospel. Yeah, and if I could uh, just phrase what you're saying is that there's no sin that's in the word that's worse than another sin. Right. There's different consequences, yeah. right? But we should accept people yeah. because the gospel, Christ died for our sin. How mm -hmm. see Romans 6:14. Sin Let's read it. Hold on just a second. <laughs> Acts letters to the Romans, first and second Corinthians. I do. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're no longer the law but under grace. Any sin. So, and I think that's a that's a great thought. Is like, okay, there's not categories of sin. There's sin, and there's a savior. Yeah, society has put categories. Yes. Now, someone who's living a homosexual lifestyle without conviction, repentance, and turning yeah. from that wouldn't be 
received into membership because this is what we believe. And anyone becoming a member says, yes, I believe that. Going back to the but still, we want you to come to church. And hear the gospel. Hear the gospel. Exactly okay. right. Yep. You are accepted into our church. Your lifestyle is not accepted as okay. As, where, biblically, as biblically supported. Okay. Yeah. But where so other churches are saying your lifestyle is. Because what they've done is they've taken that lifestyle and saying it, it is a consequence of what they, of your declared identity. And therefore, it is okay because you declare that as a part of your identity yes, as a person. Exactly. And therefore, it is excluded from the evaluation against Scripture. The sin category. Right. So I was made this way. I am this way. This is you know, my sovereign or my sovereign choice over myself. I. This is my truth, my reality. You know, right. you can phrase whatever you want. So therefore, it is sanct, it is um, sacrosanct and cannot be. Or I shall not permit it to be uh, investigated in light of the truth of the gospel. Right. And that's well, it's a slippery slope, right? Well, I was just in the exact phrase. Yeah. Because <laughs> then you get either the pedophiles or someone who says, "I was born with a desire of murder." What's wrong with that? What's right? wrong? I don't right? like those people. But clearly, we all people can enjoy their life. Like so, a person who can say that, I'm going to say, you should. I, I need yeah. a murder. Right? Chat. Right. And so, like, society doesn't say that that's okay, but you're going down the slippery slope of if that's okay, well, then why isn't it okay? Why else? What else will be? Else? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, we're going to just start, society will just start broadening that okay category. And that's right. where the church, as gospel teaching biblical church says no there is a line in the sand and here's the line in the sand Mm -hmm. and it's not okay to add or subtract from god's word yeah we don't define what's in god's word right we apply what's there and lisa you had your hand up yeah it's more like embracing a person but not accepting it right yeah that's well said all of us right yeah Yeah. (laughs) all of us Christ accepted us in our sin. Yes, Angie. So if a I can't say if a transgender person came to church as visitor, we'd have to like greet them and say, "Glad you're here." I would say so. I, I would say we want. To welcome them as we would any sinner, but we want to be clear about what we believe and what we feel like their hope is found in Christ. And yeah, that is a challenge. That's where we need God's grace, need the heart and eyes of God. Um, and again, that's not accepting a lifestyle. It's not accepting um, something different from biblical truth, but it's creating an environment for them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the spirit to use that agency of man in communicating the gospel, hopefully to penetrate the heart. The, I think that community is the, the tax collector prostitute that Jesus had meals with. That community is now, to a certain extent, that, that LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. community. 
that right? that we need they need you know a, a, a well person doesn't need know. a physician, <laughs> right? And so if they walk through our doors, yeah, I should be like, my gosh, I am so glad you are here. This is awesome that you're here. Because you're going to hear the I pray that that would be my reaction, and I think it's easy to say that here. You know, uh-huh. yeah, that's yeah, but yeah. you're right, you're right, and she went, you know, and, and definitely, like, you may not even know. Well, <laughs> somebody, what I was thinking. Yeah. if somebody walks into an emergency room with an arterial bleed, okay, they're going to die very soon, right? Yeah, right. You don't see the ER staff saying, ew. You're getting blood everywhere. You, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm You know, go away. We just washed this floor. You know? <laughs> just clean up. Just clean. Yeah. So, Stay clean. <laughs> say, okay, come on, get them in here right now. You know. That's yeah. good, and Robert. That's, that's a good. That's a good comparison. They don't know they're a sinner. They don't know yet. And so how awesome would it be to be able to share the gospel with them, right? And it's not my job to save them. It's just my job to say, I love you because God created you. And I love you enough to say your hope is not whether you're male or female. Your hope is in Christ, right? Come, listen, and let's talk about it. And it may be offensive, it is for those who aren't saved. Christ is offensive, right? Right. Um, and so, but let's talk about it. Let's let's dive through this, and then trust that some of those external sins, the same way we fight with them every day, and grow and get sanctified, that they do too, right? That's the hope. That's the hope. But with. Doesn't this help you? No, that's that's good, Kristen. That, yeah, exactly. This helps you to be able to categorize, okay, what is it we believe, and where is it? And, oh, yeah, and let, let me go to that passage. And the, let, let me look, let me read, let me see where it's found. So, again, value that. We've got uh, about five minutes left, so let's go to our third section. <laughs> man's sin and its effects the origin of sin God originally created man innocent and righteous without stain or corruption in this state Adam and Eve enjoyed a fullness of life and communion with God delighting in him and his righteous in his righteous will, yet capable of transgressing. That's how they were created. They're capable of transgressing. Despite these privileges, they were led astray by Satan and willfully sinned against their creator by doing what he had forbidden. In their rebellion, they doubted his character, rejected his authority, and disobeyed his word. 
Man's trespass of God's command brought enmity with God. Okay, another word that is that something we understand. Enmity, and again in your material says, is a state of feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to God. Okay, so that's what that means. Actively opposed or hostile to God. Brought enmity with God and the curse of death. Because God had established Adam as the representative head of the human race. His sin was imputed to all his descendants. Imputed. Another word that might not be familiar. Imputed means to think of as belonging to someone. And therefore to cause it to belong to that person. God thinks of Adam's sin as belonging to us. And it therefore belongs to us. It comes from outside of us. It's imputed to us. And justification, he thinks Christ's righteousness is belonging to us and so relates to us on this basis. It's imputed to us. His sin was imputed to all his descendants, bringing guilt, condemnation, and death to humanity. Therefore, we are all by nature corrupt, and inclined to evil from conception. Two-year-olds. Yeah. Six months old. (laughs) From the inherited corruption of humanity arise all the sins that we commit. All people are now by nature enemies of God, living under the power of Satan, subject to the curse of the law and deserving of eternal punishment. Moreover, the whole nature of man has been corrupted by the fall, And no part of man is untainted by sin. Although fallen people remain in the image of God, so that hasn't changed, remain in the image of God and manifest the virtues of common grace. Remember I talked about that before, how you can see God in creation. They are inescapable of pleasing God. I'm sorry, sorry, I didn't read that right. They are incapable of pleasing God, meriting his favor or freeing themselves from the bondage of sin. Their hearts are hardened. Their understanding is darkened. Their consciences are corrupted. Their spiritual sight is blinded and their deeds are evil. Therefore, all people are dead in sin and without hope, apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. The curse of the fall corrupted not only mankind, but the entire created order, subjecting the word to futility, decay, and death. Both the cursed creation and moral evil produce calamity, suffering, hostility, and injustice in the world. The groaning of the created order reminds us of our fallenness and causes us to long for the redemption of all things under Christ. Which really, as you look at that, that kind of encompassed our last kind of overall discussion, didn't it? Just the, the depravity of sin and the pervasiveness of sin, I don't think we realize how deeply we've been affected. And the world certainly doesn't. Where is joy in the world? My happiness. Well, then my happiness needs to be what I pursue above all things, right? And so what? more and more life has to sit around me. And if you disrupt that, then you're the enemy. If you don't acknowledge who I would identify myself as, then you're hurting me. Then 
you need to stop. It just the effects of sin. But when we see it, I think we have what what Kirsten was saying other uh, earlier, a compassion for those caught in sin. We still and always will. But we have found a savior. We have a hope that's centered outside of ourselves. They don't. They have a hope that's centered on themselves alone. And then when that doesn't meet up, right, and when that falls short, because it always does, we know that it will. Right. It falls short, and then it doesn't work. So try something else, or try something else, or depression, and then, like, what's the point of all of this? Right, you go and... Yeah. It's all still about self. We have a savior outside of us who has given his life for us that we might be freed. Romans 6.14, I read earlier, sin no longer has dominion over you. Those in the world, sin has dominion. But for the believer, sin no longer has dominion over you. You're no longer under the law trying to understand the rule and obey the rule, but under grace. Mm -hmm. By grace, you've been saved through Christ. What a message. So it's that message that we want to get out. It's that sense that we're, the whole world is sinners. There's either saved sinners or lost sinners. You know, so what we have in common is that we're all created in the image of God that we're all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all in need of a savior to take our place and reconcile us with a holy God, which Christ did. That makes me think back to how do we accept people who have sinful water club styles and don't agree with maybe instead of seeing them that way, look at them as still being image bearers of God. Mm-hmm. You know, it's distorted, but they're still they still are. So they're created. The yep. Loving respect to the person who acts like a maniac, cutting off on the road. Oh yeah, that's still an image bearer. Mm-hmm. It's an image bearer who doesn't know he is. Yes. Right. But we still have to hold it in honor, just like we hold exactly. all life in honor, and that's why our perspective is different on a lot of these life, you know. Is there value in life, you know, or do you, you know, end someone's suffering by letting them take their own life? We would say no, because there's value in that person's life, because they're an image bearer. So even if someone is blatantly living in rebellion to God, we don't know that at some point God can touch them and transform their heart. So we have to still uphold that life as being valued. Yes. Because he touched me. Right. Right? I didn't deserve it. Aren't we still living sinful lifestyles? Yes. That we wouldn't agree with? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else who would say, would look at me and go, dude. (coughs) Well, and one thing that was interesting, the word calamity. I like that word. That's a fun word. Uh, Because it just sounds like it is. Calamity, you know. the categorization or hierarchy of sin. I remember there was a discussion after 9-11 that people were calling it blatant acts of evil terrorism and all that kind of stuff. And there was this phrase that was sort of bandied about uh, called man-caused disaster. Rather than... And I thought, well, that's actually not a bad one because you could say 
sin-caused disaster, or mm -hmm. sin-induced disaster. That's all of us. We are a sin-induced disaster, right? Apart from Christ. Apart from Christ. And uh, you can dress it up and, and call it whatever you want to call it, but that's really what it boils down to. We are a sinful calamity. Oh, and I'll speak for myself. I am a sinful calamity apart from Christ. And I know it. And I'm, I'm thankful that I know it because then I can appreciate there's that contrast thing, you know, the glorious uh, sacrifice of Christ on the cross and look at that against my complete unworthiness and go, wow, there's that, there's one of my two utterances I'll have upon entrance into heaven, I think. So. That's good. Yeah. I, I, and it's wonderful how reviewing the statement of faith <laughs> is this vehicle to where we're talking and getting a greater view of God and his word, yeah. right? A greater perspective and love for the gospel. Wonder about Christ and who he is and what he's done and for us. And it's simply articulating what we see in the Bible about these different topics. So that would be one of our goals in doing this, as I said when we started. Let's take the statement of faith as less this end of a commercial where it says, if you take this, you know, you may experience this and this and this and this and this, and this, and this, and this. you know, just because thing you got to say, right? To this thing that talks about our God in a way that we believe, that we believe and embrace together and see our view of God and Christ increase. All right. Well, thank you for coming to class. Thank you. You're welcome. It's a lot of fun. All right. Kristen, would you mind to close us in prayer? Dear God, uh, uh, we just thank you. Um, we thank you for today, for allowing us to just dive deeper into your word, into our statement of faith as a church, um, to grow our own faith. Uh, to get to know you more, God. We thank you for Trey, for all the leaders of our church who have been a part of this, who believe this, and who live this out um, daily. God, mm -hmm. um, we are yes. so grateful for a church mm, that knows you, your Lord. word, that lives your word, and preaches your word. There aren't, um, not every church can say that, God, and we are so grateful to be here. Um, we pray. You continue to bless the leaders of this church that they may continue to shepherd us uh, in such a wonderful way, God. Um, we pray for this week that you are bigger this week um, than you yes. have been last week for us. Please, Lord. Please just help us see your awe this mm -hmm. week. Um, and thank you, God. For your saving grace. Yes, Lord. Thank you for Christ, Lord. None of this matters without him. Um, pray for a wonderful week and look forward to next week to dive deeper into this. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Yeah, next week, Jeff will be, we'll, we're kind of, exactly. Willie was going to teach this, but he's come down with COVID. So yeah. Jeff and I are going to kind of tag team through through this. So next week, Willie Hensey.
so you can see on the first part all the different sections, and I highlighted what we reviewed today. So next week is going to be the person of Christ, the saving work of Jesus Christ, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. All three of those. All three of those. Good try. Wow. Isn't that great? Go, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like I want that one, Jeff. <laughs> All right, well, y'all are dismissed. Have a great day. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Wonderful creation, and then man puts it in the toilet. We made it like 20 pages. We didn't crash at all. Way to go.